So you get me for a little bit, and then you get the lovely Kenny Wiley. And, you know, we talked a little bit about what we were going to say this morning, but, you know, we're thinking that the Spirit might just carry us into some sort of a confluence of, of being together in how we speak about this thing called knowing. And you'll notice in the order of service that I picked up on the old song, Hooked on a Feeling, as a uh, title. I don't know how true to that I want to stay, but we might get back around to that after a while. But this idea of knowing is something that I would like to start us off with, just questioning how do we know what we know? How, how do we know? Um, we're living in a time that is rife with something called fake news that I'm determined to believe the more we talk about it as fake news, the more it becomes fake news. And we're, we're looking at a time when people are being denied access and all kinds of things based on their bodies because of what someone thinks they know about someone else. And that's kind of where I want to go. And that's why I shared the story that I did this morning with our kids. Because I'm a firm believer that no one can know my body better than me. Like you must know your body better than anybody else. But we don't always take the time to do that. Sometimes we are in a bit of denial. All of us go through that. Sometimes we don't want to face the truth about what may be our bodies. And a lot of that comes down to exterior and external forces working against us, telling us things about our bodies that we know aren't true. I'm a firm believer in spidey sense. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Spidey Sense, you're, you're, you may not have been tuned into the Spider-Man comics. And Spidey Sense is that sense that Spider-Man used to have about, ooh, something's going on in the world. Ooh, there's something that's about to happen. But I like to apply that Spidey Sense first and foremost to myself. It's a gut feeling, intuition, all that. And that comes, I believe, from trusting my body, learning to trust and to know my body. You know, it's an interesting thing. I, 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 I stopped us to, to mention uh, Somalia and Mogadishu because we're here in Cambridge. We are thousands of miles away, and our hearts go out to people anywhere who are suffering and in pain. At the same time, we can't know what their experience is. We can listen to it, hear it, receive it, but we can't know, just as, as, and not just in terms of a disaster, but even just the lived experience of people all around this world we have to receive 
that information. We can't make it up. We can't be surrogates to other people's experience. If we want to know the Bangladeshi experience of growing up in Bangladesh, we, we, unless we have actually done that, we can't know it. And that brings me back again to bodies and how our stories, our realities are received through our bodies and impressions that are made in our brains through scars on our skin, strains and strengths in our muscles, and they are each ours alone. This is what sits at the heart of how we know the world. Now, another part of this whole business of knowing is, I believe, and I could be wrong about this, you may want to correct me on it after service, but I think a lot of it has also come down to binaries, being taught binaries, being taught that there is a black and a white, that there is an up and a down, a good and a bad, a male, a female, a winner, a loser. And I would challenge that and say, no, life isn't just about binaries. It's not just about one or the other. I saw a lot this summer uh, working with patients in a hospital who were dying and families who were with their loved ones as they were passing. And that moment when you have your hand on someone's forehead and the machine says that they are gone, but you know they're not. And you feel their presence in your hand, in the room, everywhere around you. And that became one of the most powerful experiences to bust apart this idea of binaries that I've experienced yet, that there is such a wobbly line between life and death. Part of our experience of life and death involves this whole business of love and hate as well. That's another binary that we've often learned, that you hear a lot of people talking today about love conquering hate. I had an exchange online this week. I was off Facebook as much as I could be, but couldn't resist. I saw a friend of mine, a, a dear friend who is a, a, a brilliant attorney, LGBTQ attorney, and he said, it is getting harder and harder for me to believe that love actually conquers hate. And my response to him was that love and hate are not opposites. Love and hate are more like fraternal twins. They may come from the same gene pool, but they are totally separate and independent entities. In fact, they often work in cahoots with one another. <laughs> It's interesting. I, I also preached a sermon that I referenced in an earlier sermon this year um, where I made the statement that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is abandonment. To love is to care so much that you stay in the struggle regardless of how difficult it may be. And that's kind of the direction I want to keep us going here. You know? How is it that we love? How do we know love? 
How do we know love in the context of a world that also includes hate? Is it justice? Is it our commitment, our passion? I'll give you a couple of examples that may seem a little, well, probably very random to you. I was revisiting the um, old William F. Buckley Gore Vidal debate. Some of you might be familiar with it, some of you might not. But it's a moment when you had two men sitting on very opposite sides of the, their concepts of the Vietnam War and concepts of life, one very conservative, one radically liberal. In fact, in the 1960s, one of the few people who was publicly recognized as being gay. And they got into this fight on national television where Gore Vidal called William F. Buckley, the conservative, a crypto-Nazi. Yes. <laughs> um, unfortunately, William F. Buckley's reply was then to call Gore Vidal on national television a queer. And it wasn't a word that we had reclaimed yet. And it was very interesting. Most people's perception of this debate was Gore Vidal won. And I think it's because Gore Vidal was willing to just be there 100%. He was himself to the nth degree. There was no shying away from who he was. He didn't deny being gay. But William F. Buckley certainly denied being a Nazi. There are many, many other examples of people who do what we call in figure skating, leaving it on the ice. You go out there and you give it everything you've got. Absolutely everything. That's kind of where I feel like we need to go with this whole question of love as well. That rather than putting it in the context only of hate, that we're willing to put it in its own beautiful, powerful, dynamic, challenging context and leave it all on the ice so that when someone comes and calls us a queer, we're like, yeah, bring it on. <laughs> and to that end, I would like to invite us as part of, as an expression of knowing, as an expression of knowing ourselves, knowing how and who we're committed to, that instead of talking so much about love, I love talking about love, you know that, but that maybe we talk a little bit more about celebration. How can we celebrate who and what we are in a diverse way. Yesterday, I was at a family memorial for the brother-in-law of my cousin. He was a young man who died way too soon of a very painful disease. And I watched and I learned, and I am so glad sometimes for procrastination because I have this to share with you today. I watched my cousin's wife, Christy, deliver the most beautiful affirmation of who this person not just was, but is still very much so in people's lives. 
And it made me think, oh my gosh, he's still here. Much like having the hand on someone who has just passed and you've got their sense in the room, his, his being was in the room and we were able to celebrate him. So my challenge to you is, how can we celebrate in life what we would normally wait to celebrate when people are gone? Why not celebrate now? I I wrote a little hashtag for myself. Today I celebrate. Or maybe today we celebrate. Step into your reality. You have nothing to lose. Leave it on the ice. A celebration is not just about party hats and balloons. A celebration is seeing the beauty in every facet of someone and seeing that beauty in yourself, whether it is a flawed beauty, a challenged beauty, an incomplete beauty. Today I celebrate. Today we celebrate. Today we celebrate larger bodied people, particularly women whose bodies, regardless of size, shape, and age, are the embodiment of magic. Today we celebrate people with terminal illness. Today we celebrate the people who sleep under the the protection of the eaves of this church. Today, we celebrate rowers (laughs) and the parents that take them to practice. Today, we celebrate masculinity, not as a contrast to, but in concert with, and even a product of femininity. Today, we celebrate blackness. That is what it is that makes someone black, not in relationship or contrast with whiteness, oppression, or overcoming white supremacy which isn't easy, but all the manifestations of how the vast African diaspora shows up in mannerisms, music, art, intellect, ancestors, and the lived experience of being. And my friends, what would it look like to celebrate what it means to be white European without the specter of a true crypto-Nazi like Richard Spencer sucking up all the air in the room? Radical. We must be willing to leave it all on the ice and believe that we have nothing to lose in being radically inclusive. And as I see it, our bodies are our first opportunity to share in that vision. For some, a world that does not assume certain types of cognitive function or mobility or language or gender identity may seem like it requires a lot of effort. But that is only because we've been lulled into a lazy, binary ideal of a restrictive society that only uses one-tenth of our brains and even less of our heart. This thing, these bodies in which we are contained are, are incredible. They're both vessel and portal. Our true power rests in holding on to, making space for, and carving out the opportunity, freedom, bravery, and sometimes defiance to bear our wildly variant realities to the world and to show up as our whole and complete selves, which means knowing ourselves. 
good and bad. And knowing ourselves and sharing our true selves with the world is something that we can celebrate every day. That is a feeling that every single one of us can get hooked on. Well, good morning, friends. <sighs> it's good to be with y'all. Uh, I wanted to introduce myself and tell you a couple things about me. So my name is Kenny Wiley, and if you uh, are fairly new to this community, you might be wondering, like, why are they cheering for this dude? Um, I used to work here, is the story. Uh, I was the ministerial intern in 2012 and 2013. Uh, I currently work uh, for the UUA as a senior editor for UU World Magazine, and I live in Denver, uh, and I work for the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado. I also want to tell you a few things about me as uh, when I lead in worship. Um, I'm a big believer in worshiping how you need to, so if you are an amen person, a preach it person, uh, someone who likes to talk a little bit during the sermon, I invite that and I welcome that, but you don't have to. If, if what you need is to sit and contemplate quietly, as is the more normal UU custom, that's of course welcome. And I also, as I like to tell folks when I preach, that I always preach with my phone right here, and this is a story that some longer time folks might know. I always preach with my phone, and the reason is because um, Whenever I, would, whenever I would preach, my mom um, wanted to hear me do my thing, and I think this is when I was in college or in grad school, and so she would have me call in um, and put her on speakerphone so she could listen. Um, and my mom died six years ago, so I always put my phone as a reminder uh, that somewhere, somehow, my mom and my uh, more critical uh, dad is also listening. So. <laughs> So, um, and one more, just a bit of, uh, I guess, content awareness or warning. There are mild to moderate themes uh, of bullying in what I'm going to preach on. And so just please take care of yourselves as you need to uh, with that. So I am a, a lifelong Unitarian Universalist. And... Um, Every, so I grew up in Houston, Texas, so I heard someone say they're from Houston. Um, and my church, uh, we would have a woman elder on Christmas Eve read the words of Sophia Lyon Foz, who was a great 20th century religious educator. And every Christmas Eve, someone would read these words from Sophia Lyon Foz, and it always meant so much to me to hear these words, and so I'm going to read them now for you. She wrote, For so the children come, and so they have been coming, always in the same way they come, born of the seed of man and woman. No angels herald their beginnings, no prophets predict their future courses, no wise men see a star to show where to find the babe that will save humankind. Yet each night a child is born is a holy night 
Fathers and mothers sitting beside their children's cribs feel glory in the sight of a new life beginning. They ask where and how will this new life end? Or will it ever end? Each night a child is born is a holy night, a time for singing, a time for wondering, a time for worshiping. And so Adam and I planned the service over Facebook Messenger, basically. Um, I was like, I'm going to be in Boston for work. And he said, so you want to preach? And I was like, okay, cool, yeah. Um, that's basically how it went. And <laughs> he said that the service theme was on knowing and that you all have been exploring that, the idea of knowing. And when I was a kid, I knew that what I just read for you was my theology in essence. I've come to think of it a bit more expansively. It's sometimes it's mothers and mothers sitting beside their children's cribs, or fathers and fathers, or multiple people surrounding in community. But I knew that this was my theology. And I remember, you know, like I was, I don't know, I was just the kind of kid that, you know, I would ask whichever elder, you know, like when they were planning the Christmas Eve service, like, don't leave it out. Don't leave it out. I'm like eight. Don't leave it out. I'm like, okay. Um, we're not going to. Don't worry. <laughs> and I knew that was my theology. To know that your theology, each night a child is born, is a holy night. That's great to know that. The problem is, of course, that we have to live that out. And that's much harder. Each night or morning or afternoon or day, a child is born is a holy night, which means that each and every one of us is holy, is sacred, is valuable. It's cool to know. It's harder to do. So I grew up going to camp, to church camp uh, in the southwest, formerly the southwest district, uh, Swoosey in southern Oklahoma. And I went pretty much every year from the time I was four. And in 2001, I was 13. And um, another summer, I was pumped, I was ready. And I invited one of my, my best friends from church who'd never been to camp to come up before. That was for eighth grade year. It was going to be a big year, and I wanted my friend to be there. And I just talked it up for months and months. And I said, Peter, you have to go to Swoosie. You have to come. And about five days before Swoosie, Peter comes over after church, and he shows up at my house. And Peter also grew up UU. Peter's this, you know, nice white kid. I don't know. We, like, we played games and did what kids do. And Peter showed up at my house, and he had also, he was also in eighth grade, and he had gotten a mohawk. And I was so taken aback. And I was so embarrassed. And so 
we got in the car five days later and we drove up the five hours from Houston to southern Oklahoma and we got to camp and you probably know where this is going. This is my best friend since age four and what did I do once we got to camp? I ignored him. I pretended like I didn't know him. And you should know that I preached this story with permission from him. But the whole week, six days, I didn't talk to him. Or I would leave the conversation as soon as possible. And he said, and finally, on the last full day from camp, at camp, he said, he said, Kenny, this hurts. I don't understand what you're doing. And I didn't have an answer, but I knew I was in the wrong. And I didn't know how to apologize to him. And Peter and I drifted. And it wasn't until I was 16 that I drove over to his house and said, Peter, I need to apologize to you. I tell you this story because it's one thing to know, it's another thing to do. It's one thing to have good theology. That's great theology. It's another thing to do it. It's one thing to know what kind of person you want to be. It's another thing to do it. I learned something about myself. I learned that I am capable of good and I have skills and talents and gifts and I have capacity for tremendous harm and hurt. I can be friendly and warm and inviting and I can get so caught up in ego and in, you know, being popular and being liked by my other friends that I can leave someone I'd played with since age four behind. And still I know that I have the capacity to apologize for redemption, to do better, to be better, to learn and grow. There's, (laughs) when Adam and I were talking on Facebook Messenger, and he said the service was about knowing. I, the first thing I thought of was this, after, the second thing I thought of after the Sophia Lyon Fawes was this quote from Men in Black, which is now the movie, which is now 20 years old. Um, it came out in 1997. That blew me away. Um, and Will Smith looks like the same. It's so weird. Um, and in it, when, so the, the basic premise is there are aliens and there are people trying to cover it up so that most people don't know it. That's the plot, spoilers. Um, and so Will Smith is being recruited by Tommy Lee Jones to join the organization. And Tommy Lee Jones's character, Agent K, says to Will Smith, 1,500 years ago, everybody knew that the Earth was the center of the universe. 500 years ago, everybody knew that the earth was flat. And 15 minutes ago, you knew that humans were alone on this planet. 
Imagine what you'll know tomorrow. And I'm like, dang. <laughs> I'm just, I just want to watch Will Smith, you know, save the world again. Like, and that's so beautiful. Imagine what you'll know tomorrow. If we are open to knowing, open to learning, open to being honest about ourselves, our capacity for good, our capacity for harm, our capacity to fall short, our capacity to make a difference, our capacity to let someone down. We're capable of so much. When I think of knowing, Adam, I think of awareness, of a fuller understanding of who we are and how we show up in the world. Imagine what we'll know tomorrow with that openness. And I think it's this idea that it's one thing to know, it's another thing to do. We know in this church that black lives matter. We know in this church that women's rights are human rights. We know that trans lives matter. We know that each and every one of us is sacred. We know. But what will we do, not just in the big moments in front of people and in big speeches, and when our friends ask us on Facebook Messenger to preach, not just then, but each and every day, what will we do to ensure that that knowledge stays with us as we live, as we act? So what will we do to ensure that black lives matter? What will we do to ensure that women's rights are human rights? What will we do to ensure that truth that each night a child is born is a holy night? What will we do? And this is where I'm at right now. I'm trying to figure out how to go beyond sounding right and to start doing right. You know, being, being 29 is a goofy age because, especially when you're preaching at a UU service, because like the kids think you're old, and then a lot of the folks think you're young. Um, a lot of the adults are like, 29, that's, you're just getting started, you know. <laughs> but I think what I want to leave you with is that the more I learn, the less sure I get. The more I learn about myself, the less sure that I am. The more I grow, the more aware I am of my capacity to do great and to do harm. My prayer, First Parish, is that we all come to know ourselves more fully, that you come to know this community more fully, not just for its social justice values, 
but to know its story, to know its pain, to know First Parish and the places where it's shown up so perfectly well as we know it has, and the places where First Parish has let people down. Come to know the times when you have been the best of friend, a loving partner, a valuable sibling or cousin, and come to know those times when you've fallen short and, and examine that. Each night a child is born is a holy night, a time for singing, a time for wondering, a time for worshiping. Every morning I repeat that to myself, and I know that is where I want to live my life from. And I know that there will be times when I don't do it. But I'm still open. I'm still trying. And I know that this community is still open and it's still trying. And if we keep showing up, flaws and all, pain and all, uncertainty and all, if we keep showing up and keep trying to be more aware, imagine what we'll know tomorrow. Amen. Blessed be.